Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And this week's episode is a special one. We decided, uh, mainly the amazing producer that we have for this podcast, Lauren Woodburn, decided that we should use uh, my travels for spring break as a time off to interview folks to uh, go back and look at uh, the vault, as she would say. So we have, I think, about five or six um, clips from some of our favorite interviews, from Brad Montague to Dr. Amen to Jeffrey Canada to Elena Aguilar to Eric Weinmayer. Uh, to Dr. L. Um, they're just some really cool conversations that we wanted to share with you again, because they're some of my favorite moments that we've had this last year. Um, if you're on vacation, as I am right now, for those of you who can see on video, I am doing this intro from the hotel room. I hope it uh, isn't scaring too many people off, given my casual nature. But um, yeah, I think it's a perfect time to just listen to if you're on the beach, if you're traveling in the car, uh, these are some just amazing people, and these clips are some of my favorite from the last year. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being a great supporter. Next week, we welcome uh, Stephen M.R. Covey back to talk about trust and inspire, and you do not want to miss that. He is an amazing man with a huge heart and an awesome, awesome, inspiring story to tell. So um, again, thanks for being a, a loyal listener. Hopefully, uh, you know, even if you've listened to these interviews before, you'll like me, enjoy the clips that we have because they really mean a lot to us. And uh, as your support means a lot to us. So thanks for your support. Thanks for really listening and enjoy this episode. So diving in, I mean, I, I promised everyone listening at the beginning, we're going to keep diving into more like life-changing paradigms and experiences. And so I have a few that I pulled out that I want to talk about, but feel free to, to go any direction. The diving board. Let's go. Yeah, let's do it. I, I mean, I'm so excited. I'll tell you some stories along the way of like, how it's impacted my life already with my adult relationships and my kid relationships. Um, but the first one that, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks and I'll it's any accident you start the book there is the lesson about show up, right? Just mm. show up. Can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of learn the importance of that lesson and being present and showing up? Yeah. I mean, it was, you have this idea of what you think is going to happen when you start a project. I mean, that's just sort of the nature of anything. You start and you sort of think, okay, I have an idea where this is going to head. I had some thoughts about what kids might say about what they think makes a great grown-up, but I didn't expect it to be just so uh, blatant that over and over and over every setting I visited, it would come up that they just wanted and longed for, needed the adult's presence. Uh, now they would bring up other things like, you know, jet skis and ridiculous stuff, but that they wanted to do like big, cool things, but it would always come back to just wanting to be together and that their favorite moments with some grown up that meant a lot to them were not spectacular, but were very simple. Um, that the thing that they longed for most was just to be seen and to be together. And, and so as a dad, as a person who, who cares about the kids in his life, um, I want to do big things for them. Like I, I, I do, I, I, I want to throw big parties for them and go on big trips. And I feel that pressure to be a great dad, a great grown up. And I thought this would just sort of turn that up even more in me and make me really like lean into being a great dad and great grown up. And instead it helped me relax into seeing all the ways I already matter to the kids in my life. All the ways just by me being me and being present with them is a big deal. And so I, for me, it helped me unlock the moments that were already extremely meaningful. That tying my daughter's shoe, just a few moments of the morning, that was one of the most important things I would do that day. And doing that over time, showing up and looking her in the eyes and tying her shoe and saying something um, meaningful to her was a bigger deal than us going to Disneyland or, or doing something huge together. Um, just your presence. And, um, and uh, there's, there's science to prove this. There's, uh, I, there, the more I discovered uh, uh, that, that this was something kids longed for and it was something that they biologically, psychologically, that they, they needed 
um, just presence. And, and so one of the greatest gifts of releasing a book like this has been the feedback when people say that they stopped reading it just so they could go play with their kids or they, they shut it. And I'm like, that's a weird thing to be happy about that somebody just stopped reading your book. But that, that was the hope that, that it would just wake people up to the magic that's already around them. You're already doing it. And so that's kind of what I feel like is part of my work is to show up, there's a room full of educators, a room full of people that maybe work at a children's hospital or whatever capacity, and I can just tell them, you're already doing it. <laughs> like you're already, already, just you being you is already making a difference. Now let's talk about what kind of difference we wanna make. Like how do, how do you, let's start there with your presence. Too many people, they'll try one of these techniques once and then they'll give up which is sort of like you're 50 pounds overweight on Monday, have a salad for lunch and expect to be trim on Friday. It's insane, right? But we have to develop these same practices. This is good for my brain or bad for it. I start every day with today is going to be a great day. And that way I find what am I looking forward to the day, like this interview. You know, I've loved my relationship with Franklin Covey for a long time um, when I go to bed at night I did this last night I do it every night what went well today I say a prayer and then I go what went well today and for me it's like a little treasure hunt I actually start at the beginning of the day and I look at all those things that went well because it sets my dreams up to be more positive and it's these small things. I also have a new book coming out next year called You Happier, The Seven Neuroscience Secrets of Feeling Good Based on Your Brain Type. And one of the fun exercises in the book is find the micro moments of happiness for you and write them down and keep a list so that you begin to appreciate the micro moments. I mean, yes, celebrate the macro moments, but you know, they're sort of few and far between where every day there are dozens of micro moments from my granddaughter this morning went to school dressed up as a superhero for Halloween and I got a picture and it just, it's like this little squirt of dopamine that makes me so happy so if you learn to pay attention to what's right rather than just what's wrong you're gonna feel so much better it had been really helpful we talked yesterday so yesterday not that this shows about me in any way but um i had a really tough uh professional conversation with somebody who worked with me and it was it was really tough and something i you know was not looking forward to and dreaded um but I had a coffee with a person that I've worked with for nine years and I haven't seen you know, a year or so because of COVID and everything. And that was the best thing. But when I went to bed, I'll let you guess what I was focused on. And so I didn't sleep very well versus like, as you were talking, I'm like, I had so much joy in that coffee moment. If I would just teach myself to meditate on that, I could start seeing all the amazing other things that are happening in my life every day. Three weeks. It'll make a dramatic change in your level of happiness. Three weeks. Every night, write down or meditate on what went well today. All of us have crap that happens every day. And if you focus on that, you feel like crap. Um, you know, I learned this early on as a psychiatrist is in like five minutes, I could make anybody cry just by the questions I asked them, just by how I got them to think. You know, if I got them to think about the loved ones they've lost or the times they've been embarrassed or um, the times they perhaps have failed. Um, like I played in an all-star baseball game and I think I made three errors one day. Or yeah, it was, it was a bad day. If I think about that, I'm going to feel less competent, miserable, actually. But I could also take that same person and make them smile or make them laugh or help them be happy 
just by the questions I ask. When did you feel most loved, most loving, most competent, uh, you know? And, you know, one great exercise is write down 20 of the happiest moments of your life. Write them down so that when you're having a hard day, you can go to them. Um, I actually have a fun exercise. Uh, I like to teach about memory because the brain works through association. And so take those 20 memories and anchor them to a certain place in your house. So whenever I walk up to my front door, I see uh, myself with my wife the day we got married. And actually the night before we were practicing our wedding dance and I almost dropped her. And, and I, I just see me almost dropping her, but it was fun. It was loving. Um, we're laughing about it. Thank God I didn't drop her. But every time I walk by the front door, I have a happy memory. And when I walk into the living room, there's another happy memory. If I walk into the kitchen, I see my grandfather was a candy maker making fudge. Now I've changed it to healthy fudge, uh, but you can do this. But it takes a little bit of effort, but it's so worth it because feeling miserable is awful. Well, I mean, you, by the way, if, if anybody's listening and they don't follow you either on TikTok or Twitter or Instagram, I mean, so much, you do a good job of balancing like, your videos with your quotes. And one quote that I stole, I don't know, several days ago, which was, uh, you become a master of your life when you learn how to control where your attention goes, value what you give your energy and time to. Right. And I, that's kind of a no done elaborating on what you just said, but I'm thinking about someone who's very close to me who like just constantly says, I can't do that. And I'm just trying to figure out how to take, take a baby step to build on that. So that three weeks is really helpful. And also positioning joy around you. Great idea. Didn't work. Uh, not, not as good idea because you have to have a job to claim that. But, we, but you have to be below a certain wage requirement. Uh, so that part, I think, worked out uh, well for us. Uh, the other sort of serious, this was one of my biggest mistakes I, I made. So when we started out with charter school, uh, we had an option for opening up the school uh, that uh, June, which would start us in September, or we could wait a year. And I was like, no, we got to open up this June now. The problem was we didn't get our charter, right, until uh, April. So then I'm looking for a superintendent uh, through May into June. Then I'm We're looking for teachers. <laughs> In June, I'm looking for teachers. This is like, what was I thinking? Who is looking for a job if you're a teacher in July? I mean, it is. it does happen. I'm not saying the teachers who may be looking for a job now that the, the best teachers are looking for jobs early in the academic year where they're thinking about switching. I loaded our schools with folks who just weren't able to do the job. Mm -hmm. And we tried to train and retrain and do all of this stuff to fix this problem. And the original problem was I should have waited and gave myself time to structure this uh, deal. Uh, and for me, I felt like we couldn't wait. It was an emergency. It was a crisis. We had to deal with it right now. But you know what? We almost had to shut the school down because uh, we weren't doing well. The scores weren't good. And the last thing we wanted needed was another lousy school. Uh, and guess who was sort of running that one? It was me. Uh, and so we had to totally readjust. Uh, take a year to rework. We didn't start the high school because we, the middle school wasn't strong. I promised a bunch of kids that they could go into our high school that year. I had to tell them no. It was the worst career day of my life. It really was. I was in tears that whole day telling kids and families who trusted me, you're gonna have to go to another high school because you can't come to mine because we're not opening it. We opened it the next year. I still feel terrible about it today. Uh, I tell folks who are interested in this work, this is not something you should ever rush. Do it right the first time because it starts the culture right. It allows you actually to have a higher chance of success.
we talk a lot about in our organization, go slow to go fast. Yeah. Um, and so that, that really resonates. I, I think uh, it was funny. So my wife is the chief of staff and former talent director at KIPP St. Louis. Uh, and that's what they've noticed is that your most talented folks, you've got to hire early in the cycle. And so uh, that's a tough learning. I will say, I, I think I heard, you know, I'm preparing to talk to you. I've listened to a bunch of different podcasts and read your book. I, I feel like there's one, there's one interview about uh, when this failure happened at your most vulnerable time that you just described, you actually invited Paul Tuff, who was, at, I guess, at the New York Times then, to come in and like cover it. Like that, that seems a little sadistic to me. I love it now looking back at the strategy, but I promise you, I, without that story, I would have never had the maturity to be like, you know what, let's bring a writer in here to cover this failure and this apology I'm about to have to go down. You know, it, it's funny because uh, it's hard It's hard for me to explain to folks how devastated I was. This was the biggest failure in my life. It was a whole group of kids and families who trusted me, who I was about to go down that night. They didn't know why they were coming to a meeting. Yep. They, all of their kids were supposed to go to high school. They thought it was going to be ours. I was going to have to tell them, not only... You're not going to my high school and it's late to get into any high school right now. So that's going to be a struggle. I was crying. I was all day. I just was in an emotional wreck. Uh, and the reason I called Paul, who I knew was writing a book. Uh, and the last thing I wanted for anybody was to really come in and know about this. But this is what I thought. This work is so hard. One day, we're going to be successful. I believe that. People were going to look in and say, yeah, that was easy for you, right? Because you had it all figured out and you actually didn't suffer any of these sort of kind of uh, soul. This was, this was at my very soul, uh, I was suffering uh, and feeling like I failed these kids. Uh, and uh, I thought that for people who care about doing tough things, we have to learn how to live with losing, with failure, uh, but not to let that define uh, your efforts. Uh, and uh, this to me was gonna be, I hoped, my seminal moment. I hope it wasn't gonna become a perennial moment, right? That, that, that we were gonna go and I was gonna suffer and I suffered that whole time. And I suffered for weeks after that, just trying to get my kids into schools and writing letters and calling principals, asking them to accept my students. Uh, and uh, I thought that, and, and now, so, you know, you fast forward now, we've eliminated the achievement gap with our kids. Folks, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I go around there like, oh yeah, Jeff, but, but you had this and you had that. And, this. and I was like, no, you need to read, you need to read where I was uh, in this journey for real. Uh, to recognize that uh, lots of folks, that would have stopped them. Uh, and a part of, I think, I mean, you know, and there are other people who have stories about failure, whether you're talking about Steve Jobs or other folks, and you know, yeah. Uh, in our business, uh, you don't, failure usually defines the end of that story, right? It was like, oh yeah, they were doing good, and then they failed, and that was it. Uh, here, I wanted to say, like in other businesses, failure could help you figure out uh, what you need to do differently to be successful. Uh, and at this point in our business, if you're going to be if you're going to be in this business, you are going to fail. I don't care where you are. If you're going to be trying to work in what I call the deep end of the pool, uh, where people drown, if you're going to go in that area you're gonna to have to learn how to deal with failure. And the question is, in lots of places, which I know you know, people accept that as the state of things. School's been failing 15, oh yeah, but you know what, I'm in St. Louis, so what do you expect? Or you know, yeah, this is Bed-Stuy, come on. What, what, right, you just accept that as the, the, the sort of the way things are. Uh, those of us who go in and say, no, it doesn't have to be like that, you have to deal with the fact that, yeah, you may try really, really hard, which we did. <laughs> Can I tell you how hard we tried? And we failed spectacularly, right? And then the question is, can you learn from that 
uh, and get back in the game uh, and uh, become successful, which is what I think we do. Someone like you who's having phenomenal success, yeah, there's some things that you know pretty early if you could fit or not, but like it, it may take five years to 10 years to really get your feet into it. To, so it's okay to go on that roller coaster ride. Oh yeah, no doubt. And, that for, and it's a struggle. That's why I tell people, you can't give up because anything worth it is going to be a struggle. Mm. So, you know, first couple years were really tough. Once you get into that five-year window, you know, you know what? Yeah, I don't have to eat a whole pot and know it tastes good, right? I think I can I can do this long term. Um, and then you 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 know, you're at 10 years where, you know, it's just it's it's a part of your blood now. It's just it's what you wake up and you do. And then after that, now you're you're starting to influence other potential leaders because you yep. have people who've been, you know, because good leaders don't create more followers. Good leaders create other good leaders, you know, and excellent followers become great leaders. So that's what I also try to uh, 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 coach folks around as well, is be a good follower. If you see great leadership, learn from it, be humble, you know, understand and, and be comfortable celebrating the success and greatness of other people. There's nothing wrong with it because you will learn so much and, and learn from my mistakes. What I tell all of my assistant administrators, learn from my mistakes. Any fool can learn from his own mistakes. Learn from the mistakes of others. My APs are tremendous. They make these assistant principals around the country are made around the world. They are they make it happen. And my APs, they're my backup. So I tell people when you act up, you see my backup, right? So, <laughs> you know, APs hat, you know, hat, tip tip my hat to them because they don't always get the credit, yep. but they do a lot of the grunt work. And that's assistant in any role. And whether you be at the superintendent level. Um, at the building level, wherever you are, most times the assistant, even those people who assist us in the work we do, right? If you have an assistant somewhere, they they make it happen every day. They keep keep you from double booking events and, and programs and they make it happen. So that's the service, right? Those who serve others are truly making a difference out there. That's great. I uh, said something about success. So I think about uh, conversation we had recently about you know the four C's to school success uh, that you've you've got. Can you? I, I'm fascinated by them, and I think they they really hit both my heart and my head as I think about being back in my schools. Can you share what those four C's are? So the four C's, my four C's of school success. When I took over, my first school was a turnaround school, and when I when I decided I wanted to become a principal. I knew I wanted to be focused, so I couldn't I couldn't be all over the place, right? I had to find some specific areas I was gonna focus on. So I knew that I had to create an environment where every child knew that they had a champion. Uh, Rita Pearson talked about that often, you know, every child needs that advocate, that champion. So my first seat is that every child deserves someone crazy about them. We have to be crazy about our kids. Those kids have gotta know we're willing to do anything we can to help them become successful, to help them get the support that they need. That's the equity that we desire so much in education and in the world, is, is doing everything we can, giving kids everything they need so that they can find that success that's important in life. So being crazy about kids. The second one, the second one is being curious about the lives of children outside of school. This pandemic has really taught us how important it is for us to know about our children outside of school. Those teachers and those principals and counselors and nurses who knew what children didn't have internet at home, didn't have devices at home, didn't have great meals, who were homeless, who were moving from home to home, couch to couch. They were able to shift right away and provide needed services and support to those families. So being curious, Albert Einstein often talked about curiosity. We need to be building curious schools where children can develop their own curiosity, but our teachers and adults can be curious about the children, the work that they're doing, and about their lives outside of school. The third one is consistent adults in the lives of children. These children don't need to come in schools and see a new teacher every year. You know, we had a school here in Philadelphia one year, 52 teacher vacancies and one building's a large middle school. The, you know, that's devastating. And those children take the same state test as children who are in schools with the same teachers for five and 10 years. They need consistent adults. That's why I chose to stay in the early in my career 
because I knew those students need to see that consistency because often they may not see it in their homes. And that's regardless of what community you live in. Across America, we have a very high divorce rate. We have a large number of children who are living in homes um, without their fathers there. So if they can't find that consistency at home, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm always driving and pushing males to get involved in education. You don't have to be a teacher, just be involved. And then my last one is a strong school culture, a culture of love and support for children. The principal is the prime facilitator of culture in the school. So uh, a strong culture where we're lifting up others through positivity would make a huge difference. And one where teachers feel that they can take risks, that they feel safe, they feel nurtured, but also where they feel celebrated and not tolerated. I've worked with Franklin Covey for almost a decade now. Um, and so I've known of your story because we're honored to have a relationship with you and uh, telling your story as well internally. Um, and I, I know you've talked a lot about uh, the importance of choosing the right team. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how we do that? I mean, right now we're going into the start of another school year and I'd be curious to know things that I should be looking for to make sure that we have the right team and that we are gelling in a way that's going to allow us to summon our own efforts. Well, I think, I mean, teams are all shapes and sizes and one, you know, teams don't just happen. You know, I think that's kind of like a little bit of a myth, you know, like, you know, teams just magically happen. I mean, maybe they do if you get super lucky, but, um, but I think one teams are carefully built, you know, methodically, carefully built, strategically built, you know, sometimes they're built in the flames of adversity, right? If you're a committed team going through some challenge together, really, believe it or not, can unite you and, and help you to lean in and uh, and support and believe each other in each other. So so adversity can be a good thing maybe for a team. It was for my early days on my teams. Um, we went to a peak called Amada Blom a year before Everest and we were good, strong team individuals but we had never really climbed anything we had a disaster you'd call it a disaster one of my friends fell coming down in a storm 150 feet he landed on a ledge that barely saved his life and he went into shock pulmonary edema his lungs started filling with fluid and we had to get him down the mountain um the whole mountain was just the wind was picking you up and slamming you back against the the face um, we're carrying big loads and just falling all over the place and just trying to get down the mountain uh, and uh, put Eric in what's called a gamoff bag, which is a hyperbaric chamber that you pump air into and brings you down to a lower altitude. It's something you guys can, uh, if there are kids listening, you can study in science class. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> three days later, a helicopter swooped in and, and saved Eric's life. So people are like, you know, you had this disaster. Um, <laughs> Well, how do you think you're going to climb Mount Everest? Well, we thought like, yeah, we, the mountain had erected a barricade in our path and believe it or not, it was by crossing through it that we became a team. We were so far from a team. And so we had great confidence that we were going to do well on Everest the next year. So the, the way I look at teams is you're just looking for people who believe in you, who are, who want to lift you up, you know, who want to, who, who, who allow you to stand on their shoulders and, and you got to then be able to let them stand on your shoulders. And, uh, and also I think people who are motivated by challenge, you know, like our team leader on Everest PV, um, he told me, I love this because it's so beautiful to me that he would have dreams and he would tell me every night I have the same dream here. You and I, he'd say, are climbing over the Hillary step and we're hand in hand and we're gonna reach the summit together. And I wake up crying. He would wake up crying. And I'm like, God, I mean, this guy may not be the best climber in the world. You know, he may not be Alex Honnell, you know, he may not, but he, he believes in what we're doing so powerfully and he's motivated by the challenge. Actually, the challenge gives him energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's really what I look for on a team, not necessarily, you know, the best pros, people who are very capable, but yet people, who you can really lean into and believe in each other. That's great. I like the idea of galvanizing around uh, the challenge, right? Leaning into it. Um, yeah. And if you're a weak, wishy-washy team that doesn't have a very strong mission or vision or whatever you want to call it, 
then yeah, you're going to fold in that situation. But if you're really committed and you really believe in what you're doing and why you're there, the challenge actually, the storm actually becomes a galvanizing, galvanizing experience, I think. My wife was really a college athlete. I was a pretend college athlete, more of like a water boy, and then realized I didn't have the talent for it, but I was aspiring anyways. Uh, and so play for me with, with my kids is we'll go play basketball or baseball or golf or, and, and there's a score that we're keeping, right? Or play for me individually is I'll go run, I'll do a workout, I'll do something. You were clear, at least I felt as I was thinking through like what play is and isn't, that that's not technically play and so that was a real interesting take that caused me to pause and reflect on what's happening with my mind and body during the times that I would call play if you had just asked me in a conversation about how do I play? Yeah, I mean, you're so conditioned into how you are engaging in and participating in, you know, any kind of sport activity that that will be really hard for you to actually play in. And so for you, if I was like coaching you or directing you, I'd probably be like, you need a finger paint. You know, you need to do something that is a completely different realm mm. for which you have no comparative model because you are always going to have that no matter how hard you try to extricate it from yourself as, a, as an athlete. So something for which you have, you know, you're only like, yes, you probably go into comparative mind because that's what humans do, but it's not going to have the same kind of emotional triggers or responses from you. It's not going to be like, I'm better, I'm worse. <gasps> What's happening to me? What's, you know. To your point, I, so I think that's really healthy because I probably spend way too much of my mind there. But it's something that my seven-year-old and five-year-old, it's really hit me, or soon to be five, uh, hit me a lot recently. We had a, um, a daddy Sunday with the two oldest and me, and we went to a restaurant where we could be way socially distanced with masks on and everything. But uh, we had uh, coloring books, tables, whatever, and they're coloring. And I'm loving watching what they're coloring, but then they would look at me and say, Dad, is this a nine out of 10, 10 out of 10, 11 out of 10, or a thousand out of 10? And I'm thinking like, guys, let's just color it a color. And I, I know for a fact, I've never tried to, to, to uh, have that rating system while they're doing some sort of art. But then I think, what am I doing or not doing that's causing that to be the norm? Because I do want us just to be in the moment and enjoy beauty for beauty. What kind of advice do you have for me? Heck, you keep giving advice for, for me in this. I'll take it of how do I continue to, uh, level set my kids and our family dynamic on not being so comparative. All right, so let's let's really unpack this a little bit. Um, when you recognize that in that moment, or even now thinking back to it, what emotions arise for you? Hmm. Uh, it's kind of a, a balance, right? It's always, I feel like emotions for me are always not good and bad per se, but there's like a positive aspect to it and it feels like a negative aspect. So positive is I, I do believe, you know, some of my competitive traits have allowed me to be successful, but there's also a detrimental side to that. It's like, what has that done to certain relationships? What has that done to let me pause and really enjoy the moment, right? Versus working on to the next. And as a dad, I want to obviously learn things throughout my life and have my kids grow and evolve in a way that I hadn't at their age. And so that's probably where I go to the deepest of, man, how do I, how do I live differently so that they can not have the same frame of mind of this comparative uh, cloud over their head all the time? So you invited my coaching or advice. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to say is you actually didn't talk about emotions at all just now. Mm. You talked about thoughts. Okay. And there's, and so this is, what I said, like, this is learning for all of us. So when we talk about emotions that can sound like when I saw, heard my kids asking this, I felt conflicted, confused, sad, proud, mm. uncomfortable. It's really interesting. The way that you responded to me is the way I'd say 95% of people respond. And what that, uh, what that tells me is we are, you know, the, we are not, it's harder for us to access emotions than it is thoughts. Cause we live in the world of thoughts and in our head all the time, right? right. We're always in our heads. And, 
And so to, you know, you could think about it as to balance out our skill set or to be able to draw on different resources, particularly in hard moments, because that, you know, that wasn't like a super hard moment. But when we hit the super hard moments, how do we access the knowledge and wisdom in our minds and in our emotions? And, and there's, and this is the thing, emotions have been dismissed, downplayed, discredited. Emotions are considered to be unprofessional, a waste of time. Even your framing is, you know, or your reference to like good and bad. There's, right. you know, that the, I look at emotions as like, this is an incredible untapped resource. We're, it's crazy that we're walking around the world, like not tapping into this resource, not understanding. We've got a gold mine that we never draw from in right. terms of knowledge and wisdom and insight and guidance and direction and energy. And so really, this is again, like for you to be able to perhaps to play in the way that you might want to play with your kids or to give them that space and opportunity, you've got to start with understanding your emotions and even understanding why it is that it's hard to access them or to connect or recognize them. It's totally normal. Like, I can't say that enough. This is my mission. If there's one thing that I want to say until I die, it's emotions are normal. We've got them and they can be our friends. Like, let's shift our relationship with them. I think uh, what's crazy is when you ask the question, I mean, I genuinely was trying to answer, right? Like I wasn't trying to like put on a face. I wasn't, I mean, again, I know we're on a podcast, but I really don't care. We're all, our, our goal of this podcast is change is messy. And so we got to come with our whole self. So I, I actually thought, and I think my team that works with me a lot would say, I am uh, incredibly transparent, probably too much to where I will share my, what I think are emotions. Now you've blown my mind and I'm going to have to figure this out. Good thing I got spring break next week to figure out what the difference is that I think I'm sharing emotions, but I'm actually not tapping into them. Um, this is great. I really appreciate it. Super, you super common. I mean, this is a, I would say this is a knowledge gap, right? It's like, it's a knowledge and perhaps a skill gap. And what is the difference between a thought and an emotion? And how do we know if we're talking about thoughts or emotions? Where is the overlap? There is an overlap. You know, what does it sound like to talk about emotions? What are the, literally like, what are the words? What's the syntax? This is where I go. I'm like, okay, tell me what it sounds like. You know, what does it, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Um, you know, and how there's a, a whole sort of direction that we don't need to go in, but the way that our body is connected to our emotions and how do we actually building a better relationship with our emotions includes building a better relationship with our bodies, a deeper one, a one that's um, much gentler and, and deeper than what most of us have had. And then again, like, I just want to point to the context or the water that we swim in in our world, which is one that does not value emotions, that do, that doesn't actually value the body in the way that I think that um, that I'm referencing or that we need to, that sees right. the body as a as a machine through which we can be more productive and more efficient and create more, but that doesn't really work for many of us. What drives you to do all those unique things and to constantly strive to be the best every day you wake up? I want the world to be a better place and it's not necessarily something that I <laughs> wanted to do quite the way I'm doing it. I actually love research. Hmm. I'm, I'm passionate about research and I was asked to go on tour um, by at the time retired General Colin Powell for something called America's Promise Alliance for Youth. And I was at Hampton University and the general good friends with the president of Hampton University, Dr. William R. Harvey. And it wasn't something I wanted to do. It wasn't something um, I even thought was cool. In fact, I had to research uh, the general. <laughs> so you know, I, I, <laughs> I, was at a, I was in a laboratory, <laughs> always just trying to make things better. And uh, I was being awakened at the same time every night for a while and uh i talked to my grandfather my grandfather's a farmer and only has a third grade farm school education and to this day he's probably the wisest man i ever met and i was being awakened didn't understand it say hey granddad what's going on and he said uh you're being called 
and I said, I'm good, granddad. I'm tenured. I'm good. <laughs> and he said, you're tenured in this life. And that changed everything for me. Mm. And this whole, this whole thing didn't make sense to me because when I ever heard people talk about their calling, it was like, I'm called to do this. And, and it was all like a perfect fit. And it's, it wasn't something I wanted to do. So I had to go back and read some of my favorite verses to realize that not everybody that was called wanted to be. Yeah. And, and that's how I felt. I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm a classic introvert. It means nothing about being shy. It just means where we get our energy. Um, I love solitary types of things. Uh, my first master's thesis was on the school to prison pipeline. And the reason I wanted to investigate that is because it had been thrown around so much, but there was no literature. So I'd mentioned it to my advisor. My advisor had a connection, and my advisor at the College of William & Mary had a connection with someone at Howard University, and they formed a research team. And I was on that research team, so I was able to use some of that data for my master's thesis, School to Prison Pipeline. And basically what it says is, what, what it postulated back then was, if school basically fails a, a person of color, a black or brown person, then the consequences are much graver for black and brown students because what's left is a pipeline that's ready, able, and capable of making money from their um, institutionalization. So my research, basically I went around with my advisor and we interviewed inmates all over the country about their experiences in public education. And what we found was very, very interesting. We found that many of those inmates talked about not having a connection with the teachers. Many of those inmates felt like they were invisible and not acknowledged in, in the classroom. So then, you know, that's when people started talking about relationships, relationships. Well, our research didn't just talk about relationships. Relationships aren't enough. So if you're teaching me and we have good relationships, I like you, you like me, but what have I learned? So we got the conversation doesn't even come close to uh, just being about relationships. It's relationships, it's solid uh, content, purposeful engagement. So it's a gamut of things. But then what we found when we interviewed teachers, this was probably the most uh, fascinating for me at the time. When we interviewed teachers, we discovered that classroom management strategies and techniques was the least taught subject to new educators. So that started, when we published that and got it out, that started a big push in higher education to make sure that there was no teacher that would leave higher education and go into an academic setting without classroom management strategy. And when we talk about classroom management strategies, we talked about primarily expectations, that high achievement is framed in expectations. So basically what you see in me, you're likely to get. So the bias and all, everything like that was a part of that. We also found that rules don't govern or rules don't govern behavior, relationships govern behavior. So it wasn't the fact that you put 20 rules on the board and said, sign them, take them home and bring them back. That was more about that relational component. I, I love your first point. Both my wife and I have been educators for a long time. And the hardest part for her has always been to turn it off. And it's not because she thinks she's so important. It, it's it's just the fact that the work is, we're so passionate about the work that it's just hard to turn off and there is a lot of guilt for it. And so one, so I appreciate you challenging school leaders to take that time for themselves. And I'm gonna take it another step. As we come back into a school year, if I'm a school leader who's not traditionally done that and I've always had this burden of guilt, I want to start take owning that and getting rid of that on myself. But I also want to create an environment at my school where my teachers are shedding that burden. What are some strategies that you talk about um, that help schools with that? You know, that is such a significant point, Dustin. It's so vital, isn't it, as a leader that we you know, we have to be role models in every aspect of our job. I remember when I was an assistant principal, um, car sharing with the person that was the principal. We were good friends and we were also environmentally aware before environmental awareness became a thing. Um, and we car shared because we lived quite close to each other. 
And he had this philosophy uh, as a principal that he had to be the first person into the building and the last person out of the building, which if we hadn't been car sharing, I would have accepted and gone, fair enough, you're, you know, you're the principal, you, you live your best life. Um, but what used to happen was this, the teachers and staff in the school would feel it was their responsibility to constantly show their principal how much they cared. And one of the ways they did that was wanting to show how many hours they were putting in to their job. And so we'd end up in some kind of Western standoff where we would both be sat in his office waiting for classroom lights to go out, right? Because his view was, I can't leave before my tea. And teachers were in their classrooms looking at the principal's office light, waiting for the light there to go out so they didn't think they were leaving before their principal. And as a result, some nights we didn't get home till 10 p.m., right? now. That's an absurdity. And I suppose it's a very extreme example of what I'm talking about here. We have to set the standard, both of excellence, of course, and all of those things, but also to make sure that we realize this absurdist model that how many hours you put in proves how much you care has to go. You know, it's a very old school industrial idea that came from Taylorism and industrial thinking, this idea that the more hours you put in, the more efficient you are, the more productive you become, the more profit you make, the more successful you are, and so you, you create this spiral. To realize that actually, um, I want teachers who are fired up, who are rested, who have got loads of energy, so that when they hit the dance floor, if you like, they can, they can dance with the best of them. And so, I think it's really, really important, A, to role model behaviors, but also B, to be really there for them on a human level and to give, make sure when they need it, you're giving them permission to step away. And by the way, the other thing that I think is really important here is to remember that even if you're taking a breather and however you might do that, whether you go for a run or a walk, whether you swim, whether you uh, are deeply into the arts or whatever it is, those moments actually are subliminally giving you loads anyway, right? Some of the best ideas I've ever had as a teacher and then as a principal came when I wasn't doing my job, if that makes sense. And I think it's really important again, both to value that those experiences for, the, for those reasons, but also to promote them amongst your colleagues. That reading a book that's got nothing to do with education, going to a movie, watching some trashy box set, right? Going for a run, whatever it is, weirdly, those experiences will actually improve your performance and, and creative thought as an educator rather than diminish them. I don't know if you've been experiencing this, but as I've talked to educators over the summer, thinking about next year, I find it to be a little bit of a mixed bag, but uh, when they're thinking about coming out of COVID of the last 18 months or so, what the future holds. So I see there are some folks who are just uh, optimistic all the time. And there are other folks who are realistic and they're not trying to be pessimistic, but they're having a tough time trying to see what the vision of the future is um, because they're a little bit held in the past. What have, One, are you seeing that? And two, what's been your encouragement to folks as they kind of grapple with coming out of COVID and how do we step into the future? I think, I think the debate has never been bigger around the future of education because in some ways, although teachers have never worked so hard and upheaval has never been so gross, in a way, the whole system's been thrown in, in the air by the nature of COVID and the lived experience of it. So there are really interesting questions being explored, particularly I think about the human learning from all of this and our ability to be more uh, adaptive to change, more able to deal with change and uncertainty and how we track that narrative back to the education sphere. Uh, you know, were we prepared not to live in a global pandemic that's a once in it, but you know, were we prepared to live in, in, in a world that changes as fast as it does now, whether it's, AI and new technologies, environmental chaos, economic chaos, socio-ethnic issues, whether it is the health crisis around a pandemic or anything else, were we prepared to not just survive but thrive in such deep times of change and uncertainty? Because I don't want to sound pessimistic here, but the one thing we know is hopefully it won't be long before we've taken control of this pandemic, but this will not be the last moment in our lifetime of profound 
change where we're feeling that we're having to run just to keep up. On the flip side, and the optimistic thing about that is people need to reflect on what we've learned and gained from the last 18 months, right? And one of the things that I think is really important is to understand whether it's conscious or subconscious is just how much our resilience pool has grown in the last 18 months. You know, the one thing we know is you can't teach people resilience, really. You have to live it. And the way you live it is to overcome adversity. It's like work going to the gym and working out, uh, working uh, on weights. You know, the more you break down the muscle fiber, the more it grows back stronger. And in some ways, resilience for me is a very similar thing. Until you've experienced adversity and found a way through those challenges, it's very diff difficult to put more resilience in the bucket, right? But because of what we've all lived through, we're all now playing with more resilience, whether we know it or not, whether we feel like it or not at the moment. And that goes for our students too, by the way. Um, you know, when you think about the post Second World War generation, who showed not just unbelievable resilience through their lives, but one, were one of the most innovative and dynamic generations in human history. Um, and I, I feel very strongly that our children's generation will be that next. I mean, I, I talk about this an awful lot to people. You know, when you look at human history, human history is punctuated with periods of profound darkness, right? If you go all the way back through our uh, human history, there are moments of profound darkness. And I think we're coming to the end of another period of profound darkness, whether it's some of the polariz polarization around the world and some of the horrific scenes we've seen in the political sphere globally, whether it's around the health crisis of the pandemic, the profound levels of inequalities that have been exposed, all of those things. Every period of darkness is followed by an explosion, a human renaissance, an explosion in innovation, in creativity, in culture and scientific discovery. And I truly believe that we stand on the cusp of that next great human renaissance, which will be driven by our children, but will be defined by the educators who are working with them now and moving forwards. And I think that's the mindset we have to go into the next few years with as educators, to understand that actually we are now in one of the most privileged positions in modern human history. Because if we get it right with the students we now have in our care, they are going to change the world and create the next Renaissance. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.